the sixth season of the hit Netflix series, The Crown, was just released. And if you know anything about it, it's all about Princess Diana. It's about her life. It's about her boys, her activism and accomplishments that made her really an international icon. It's about her death. Nearly 30 years later, we remain fascinated by Di's life, her legacy, how she captured the hearts of so many across the world. And some of you may know that her life was actually immortalized in song. So Elton John had famously written his ballad, Candle in the Wind, and he had originally written that, I think, in 73 for Marilyn Monroe, but at Princess Di's funeral... He reworked the song, he gave it new lyrics, and he performed it there at her funeral to commemorate England's most beloved princess. And it became the highest selling music single in history. It opens, goodbye England's rose, may you ever grow in our hearts. You were the grace that placed itself where lives were torn apart. You called out to our country and you whispered to those in pain. Now you belong to heaven and the stars spell out your name. Now we'll ignore the theology of Elton John's song for just a moment, but it does provide, I think, a provocative question to us this morning. If someone were to write a song about you, about your life, write a song about your legacy, what would it say? Right? What would be the chorus? What would be the refrain of that song? Well, friends, with that in mind, I invite you to turn with me this morning to the book of 2 Samuel. We're going to be in chapter 22, and you can find that on a page that I forgot to write down in my notes. Anyone want to tell me with one of those Red Pew Bibles what page 2 Samuel 22 is on? 274. Awesome. All right. So if you want to use one of those Red Pew Bibles, page 274. And if you're just joining us, 2 Samuel really chronicles the, the rise and then the tragic fall and then the glorious return of Israel's great King David. And we're coming now to the very final chapters of the book where we're going to leave largely the the historical narrative behind, and instead we're going to be given a kind of tribute, a life, so to speak, in retrospect. Chapter 22 is a song. It's a long song that reflects upon the life and legacy of Israel's greatest king. What does this song have to say about David, and what does it have to say about us? And let's find out together. Let's look at 2 Samuel 22. So listen as I read. And as I read, listen for the chorus. See if you're able to identify the refrain of the song. All right, chapter 22, verse 1. And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And he said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies." For the waves of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction assailed me, the cords of Sheol entangled me, the snares of death confronted me. 
In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I called. From his temple, he heard my voice. And my cry came to his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him his canopy. Thick clouds, a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice. He sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare. At the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils, he sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me, and from his statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you deal purely. With the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. You save a humble people. But your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord, and who is a rock? Except our God. This God is my strong refuge and has made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and destroyed them and did not turn back until they were consumed. I consumed them. I thrust them through so that they did not rise. They fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, those who hated me, and I destroyed them. They looked, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as the dust of the earth. I crushed them and stamped them down like the mire of the streets. You delivered me from strife with my people. You kept me as the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. Foreigners came cringing to me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. 
foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and brought down peoples under me, who brought me out from my enemies. You exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from men of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Now, if those lyrics sound at all familiar to you, it's because it's basically the same song that we find in Psalm 18. Only in Psalm 18, it's modified a little bit for corporate worship. So for all you Swifties out there, you know, there's Taylor's version and there's like the studio version, right? That's kind of what we have here. I'll leave you to sort out which is which. All right, but it also may sound familiar to you because of 1 Samuel chapter 2. Remember the, the books of First and Second Samuel, originally just one book. It was all together as one. It's meant to be as one. It was, it was broken up into two because it was hard to, to actually bind a book in antiquity that was so large. So it was split in two for ease. But it functions again as a single book. And the book of Samuel opens, if you remember, with Hannah's song. And now many of the themes of that song return here in 2 Samuel 22. There's, there's sort of the bookends, these two songs of Samuel. And I wonder if you caught the refrain as I read. Now if David were a typical Near Eastern king... If he were typical, his ballad, and this ballad would wax eloquently of all David's own achievements. It would catalog his many victories, his, his many successes. It would sound something closer to Elton John's tribute to Princess Di. The focus would be all on David's greatness. But while there is a boast in 2 Samuel 22... Who is that boast in? It is not in David, is it? Look down with me, verse 2. How does the song open? Verse 2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge. All right, that's how it opens. And then midway through the song, look at verse 32. Verse 32. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? And then look forward with me toward the end, verse 47. What do we read there? The, the Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be my God, the, the what? The rock of my salvation. The Lord is my rock. That is the soundtrack. That's the refrain of David's own life just as it was the refrain of Hannah's life back in 1 Samuel 2.2. She said, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. So if I were to try to summarize this whole song into a single sentence, we might do it like this. The Lord is the rock who rescues his anointed and establishes his reign. So the nations would resound in praise. 
So it's a bit of a longer summary sentence than I typically like, but let me just give it to you again. The Lord is the rock who rescues his anointed and establishes his reign so that the nations would resound in praise. And I think this starts to get to one of the great challenges of 2 Samuel 22 because we like to place ourselves into songs all of the time, right? You're in your car and you're playing something through maybe through the radio if anyone listens to those anymore or maybe you got something coming through a playlist and you hear a catchy tune and you listen to the lyrics and the tune and the lyrics, well, they kind of, they grab your mood and they describe your life and your challenges and joys and struggles and pains and so we turn the song up and we begin to sing it and we sing it like the song's about us. Well, the challenge here is This song is actually not about us. This song is about David. This song is uniquely about God's anointed one. So just as Elton John's single about Princess Diana, right, it was about her. It was about royalty. So this song is about royalty. This song is first and foremost about God's king, right? It's not just a catchy pop song about us. And yet, as we've seen, the life and legacy of David is meant to what? It's meant to point us forward. It's meant to to point us to David's greater son, Jesus Christ. You know, John Calvin, reflecting on this song, he noted that much of the song applies better to Christ than it does to David. And I think we'll see that's true as we go through it. So we have to consider this song in light of God's final anointed, his great Messiah to whom David pointed, Jesus Christ. But because it points to Christ, friends, it also has application to us. For all those who are united to Christ by faith, for those of us who participate even now in Christ's resurrection reign as his sons and daughters, it also speaks to us. So with that in mind and thinking of that refrain as the Lord, as our rock, I think there are four things we learn from the song. First, know God personally. So first thing we learn, I think, reflecting on the Lord as our rock, know God personally. Second, pray to God expectantly. Second, pray to God expectantly. Third, live for God righteously. Third, live for God righteously. And fourth, proclaim God triumphantly. Proclaim God triumphantly. Those are the four points. If you missed it, don't worry. I'll give them to you as we work through the song. So first, know God personally. Know God personally. You know, in verse 1, we're given the the background for the song. So it's sometime after David has assumed the throne. He's been delivered from his enemies, especially from the hand of Saul in particular. So chronologically, he composed this song somewhere toward the end of, of 2 Samuel, and to celebrate the Lord's deliverance, he does just that. He writes a song. David is, you could say, the classic warrior poet, like one of the original great singer-songwriters. He composed so many songs about his own life. For God has created music to be a powerful medium, a powerful medium that's meant to communicate truth, that's meant to press truth into our hearts and stir our own affections and emotions, right? Music, what does it do? It fuels the soul. It enlivens the soul, even instructs the soul 
as that music gives voice to our joys, voice to our sorrows. Truth be told, you will remember the lyrics to your favorite tune, to your favorite song. You'll remember them far better than you'll ever remember any of the words of the sermon. And that's not to in any way denigrate or undermine preaching. It is just, again, it speaks to the power of music and the power of words put to tune, especially good Christian music. And that's what David is writing. David knows that it matters what we sing. It's not just, do we like to listen to the sound of it? What are the words? Are they true? What what message do they speak, right? Lyrics matter. So you can think of this as David's redemption release, right? This is the first track, so to speak, on his deliverance album. And in a kind of staccato, like rapid-fire exuberance, David just piles up metaphors for God in verses 2 and 3, right? God is his rock, his fortress, his shield, the horn of my salvation, that horn just is a reference to strength, a stronghold. Now, when David refers to God as his rock, he doesn't have in mind a simple stone. He doesn't have in mind something you could just dig up in your own backyard. Now, rock denotes sort of an imposing, immovable, kind of jutting cliff, something that rises above the thrashing seas and provides shelter from all the chaos below. That's the image David has in mind as he refers to God as his rock. It speaks to God's support, God's defense of his people. But notice the pronouns in particular. He's not just a rock, but he's what? He's my rock. He's not just a deliverer, he's my deliverer. Not just a shield, but my shield. Not just someone else's savior, but my savior. And that language, much of the same language David is going to circle back to. In verses 47 and 49, repeat much of the same. So recognize these aren't just abstract theological concepts for David. David knows this God personally. He knows him personally. This is how God has acted for him. Right? There's relationship, there's intimacy even in these words. Friend, I want wonder if you think of God that way. Do you think of God as as personal, as intimate? Would you ever dream of putting my before God? Recognize that's actually one of the distinct contributions of Christianity, right? Islam, for example, doesn't have a notion of a personal God. He's Taweed. He is holy other. He's distinct. He is impersonal. But in Christianity, God is someone to know, someone to experience, someone to love. There's relationship. And we see this most powerfully and clearly in the person of Christ. Isn't that what we celebrate now at Christmas time? God became man, taking upon human flesh, walking, talking, eating, sleeping, crying, loving. And all of this he does with us personally. In the flesh, his name, even Emmanuel, means what? It means God with us. It's how the Son relates to the Father, John 17, in highly personal terms. It's why God speaks, right? He reveals himself to us. Why does God do that? Why does he reveal himself to us? Because he wants to be personally known by us. That's why he reveals himself. I wonder if that's how, again, how do you think of God? Do you think of God this way? Or is he simply an idea to ponder? 
Is he just a thing to be debated? A concept to philosophize over? David reminds us that we are to know God personally. We are to know God experientially. And friends, what a gift that is. To have a personal relationship with this God, the rock, the living God of all the universe. The one who created everything, sustains everything, governs everything. The one who is eternal, immortal, invisible, and is also yet personable to us. We can know this God. And so we can go to him with our trials, our struggles, our fears, which is exactly what David does, isn't it? And that leads us, secondly, because God is a rock, we're not just to know God personally, but we are to pray to God expectantly. Pray to God expectantly. You know, in verses 5 and 6, David speaks, what does he speak of? The, The waves of death, the torrents of destruction, the cords of Sheol, and Sheol just means the realm of the dead, the snares of death. You know, when we read verses 5 and 6, we might be tempted to think, you know, uh, David, you've gone a bit overboard, right? This is a little bit of poetic hyperbole, right? W- what exactly are you getting at here? But friends, death, if we think back on David's life, death daily dogged his tracks. For years, David was what? He was the most wanted man on Saul's own hit list. David was constantly on the move. Remember back in 1 Samuel, what's he doing? He's having to dodge spears. He's having to hide in caves. He's feigning insanity while he's fleeing to other countries. Saul had desperately sought to make Sheol David's permanent address. That was his whole goal in life, to see David dead. And if it wasn't Saul, who was it? It was Absalom, his own son, or it's the pesky Philistines, or it was the Amalekites. His whole life, it seems, was lived as if on the precipice of death. And what does David do? Does he complain about his hard lot? Does he go drown his sorrows in his Xbox or in some kind of shopping spree or a few beers down at the bar? Is that what he does? No, he prays, verse 7. In my distress, I called upon the Lord To my God I called. From his temple he heard my voice. And my cry came to his ears. Recognize, friend, we too can do that. Because of Christ and through Christ, our cries reach our God's ears. We can call upon this God. And I wonder, do you call upon him? Do you cry out to him in your distress? You know, imagine for a moment if you just had a direct line to the president of the United States, the most powerful man in all the world. And imagine he just came to you one day and he looked at you and said, if you ever need anything, here's my card, here's my personal number, I'll see that it happens. The whole weight of the U.S. government, right? The courts, the judicial system, FBI, CIA, NSA, military, government, everything I will unleash at your disposal whatever you need. I am here for you. Now imagine if you were told that by the president and then you ran into a little problem with a speeding ticket. 
you might be tempted, okay, you couldn't settle this one, or maybe you had a more severe problem with the IRS and back taxes. You might be tempted to call them and say, hey, listen, I don't want to cash in that one. I want to, I want to come to you. I want to lay this before you. I think if you were in an impossible bind, you'd pick up the phone and you'd call. And the beautiful thing is that God doesn't just invite us to call when we're in distress. God invites us all the time. You know, when your phone rings, I trust this doesn't just happen to me, just confession, but when the phone rings and you're, you're busy, maybe you're in the middle of a project and you're thinking, you know what, I don't have time for this call. I'm not really sure I can deal with this issue right now. Recognize we may think that way, God never thinks that way. He never thinks that way. The more we ring, the happier God is. We can't burden him. It's impossible to burden this God. So why don't you pray? In your distress, why don't you cry out to the Lord? Every cry reaches his ears. It doesn't get screened by a receptionist. It never goes to voicemail. Every call he picks up personally on the first ring. And notice when David prays to this God, what happens? This God acts. Verses 8 to 20, we read of God in all of his sky-splitting, world-shaking, right, enemy-bashing fury. There is smoke and there is fire. The earth trembles, the sky thunders, lightning darts across the sky, it says, like arrows. Now, this is not exactly what we might expect following the sweet hour of prayer, is it? But this is exactly how God comes to his own anointed. And that imagery, including down in verse 16, when, when we read the channels of the sea were exposed, we recognize this is this has not actually been David's own personal experience. Well, what experience, though, is David calling up? Well, he's, he's calling up God's great deliverance in Egypt. The language of verses 8 to 20 very much parallels a lot of the language we see in Exodus 15 as they're delivered through the waters. And then Exodus 19 is God thunders and comes down in fire and smoke at Sinai. Now again, David didn't feel the earth shake there at Sinai. He didn't hear the thunder roar or see the lightning strike. He didn't witness the parting of the seas, but he understood as Israel's representative. And so his own experience is a kind of echo there at Sinai. Like verse 17, David writes, he drew me out of many waters, right? Just as God had drawn Moses back in Exodus 2 out of the waters, you see, David didn't just get lucky with that slingshot and Goliath. Right? He knows that. That wasn't just luck. It wasn't his cat-like reflexes that had enabled him to dodge every one of Saul's spears. No, it was this fire-breathing, smoke-spewing God who had intervened on his behalf as he cried out to him and as God answered him. And friend, is that not what has happened in Jesus' own life? The darkness that enveloped the land at his crucifixion. The earthquakes, we read again, that accompanied Jesus' own resurrection. Jesus would be, much like David, overwhelmed by death, but God would raise him up to everlasting life. 
And does not it describe his return, Revelation 19, where once again the heavens are bowed and they're broken open. And Jesus himself rides upon the wind with eyes like flames of fire, like burning coals. Friends, we can pray to this God expectantly. Because just as God delivered David, and just as God delivered and resurrected Jesus, that same resurrection power, friends, that is also at work in our own lives. Now, we aren't promised every earthly deliverance from our enemies as David was promised, right? We're not God's anointed king. But we can be assured that that victory that David's greater son Jesus won on the cross, we can be sure that that victory is ours. Death defeated? Check. Heaven won? Check. Eternity secured? Check. And friends, if God has given us such great gifts, should we not praise him, cry out to him in song? Should we not pray to him? For as we pray, he directs that same power into our own situations every single day. So we can pray to God expectantly. Which brings us to verses 21 to 30. Our third lesson, live for God righteously. Live for God righteously. Now, as you were listening, or maybe if you read this week, verses 21 to 30, really verses 21 to 25, they cause us Protestants a lot of indigestion. There is a lot of heartburn in verses 21 to 25. For David is giving the reason why he's been rescued. And what does he say? Verse 21. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. Unless we think David was just a little bit confused. Verse 25. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness. According to my cleanness in his sight. And we might be left thinking, in what world could David possibly say that with a straight face? How could he do it? This is the man who has both Uriah's blood on his hands and had Uriah's wife in his bed. How can he say these things? How can he say that he kept the ways of the Lord, verse 22? Then how can he pronounce that I kept myself from guilt, verse 24. Now, one could argue, you know, he likely wrote all this before David, uh, rather before Uriah and Bathsheba. You could try to argue that, but there's actually nothing in the text that indicates that. And the way this song is placed at the end of his life, again, in a kind of retrospective, would suggest this was not just true of the beginning of his reign, but this song is capturing sort of the whole and summarizing David's reign. So how do we understand verses 21 to 25? Well, you got to recognize the language he uses is covenantal language. David understands that as God's anointed, God has entered into a relationship with him. And being righteous means having a right standing within the covenant. Being righteous means having a right standing within the covenant. A covenant that also included provision for sin through the sacrificial system. So I think as we read this, David is claiming to be righteous. Yes, he is not claiming to be sinless. We don't want to confuse those terms. He is claiming to be righteous, not sinless. 
Even the word blameless there in verse 24, that word means wholeness. It means completeness. It means integrity. He's not claiming perfection in all of life's particulars. That's not what he's claiming. He's claiming wholeheartedness in all of life's commitment. That's what he's claiming. You know, if you're, if you're married, you might have a sense of, of what David's saying here. So I can say to my wife that I have been faithful to our marriage vows. I can say I've been faithful to those vows. Well, what do I mean? I mean that I've been faithful in the sense that I have kept only unto her. I've not broken or abandoned or forsaken that covenant commitment. I'm still seeking to serve and love and, and cherish and keep only unto her. Now, I'm not claiming to be sinless in that relationship. If you wanted a really long sermon, my wife could come up and help you understand that. Not claiming to be sinless. I'm not claiming to have done it perfectly. I'm claiming to have done it faithfully. Such that when I sin, I confess my sin. I seek repentance, seek restoration. Well, friend, I think that's similar here with David. David is saying he has been faithful under the covenant. Right? He is the one who never laid a hand on Saul. Though he had opportunity to strike him down, he did not. This is the one who did not take the throne by force, though it was presented to him. This is the one who would not march the ark of God out into the battlefield like it's some lucky rabbit's foot. This is the one who would execute justice on the Amalekites when Saul himself refused. And when he sinned, this David was the one who made no excuses. He did not, like Saul, reject the word of the Lord, but he humbled himself before the word of the Lord. He confessed his sin. He accepted the consequences and he what continued, if you remember, chapter 12, in worship. David can look back and say, yes, not perfectly sinless, of course not, but faithful, righteous under the covenant, yes. And he knows, verses 26 to 27, that to the merciful and the blameless and the pure, God deals how? He deals mercifully, blamelessly, purely. There's even a foreshadowing there of the Beatitudes with Jesus, just thinking of what Jeremy preached last week. Verse 28 sums it up well. You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. That's basically an echo of what Hannah prayed in 1 Samuel 2. It's what Mary prayed from our scripture reading in Luke 1 this morning. And has that not been, in fact, much of a summary of 1 and 2 Samuel? That you save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down? Does not God humble the proud? Throughout the whole book, Eli's sons, Goliath, Saul, Nadab, Absalom, he brings all of them low, and yet he raises up the humble, right? Like David, even like Mephibosheth. And yet, whereas David can say all of this relatively, you know, this is rel like I am righteous, not perfectly, but, but I am righteous, I am faithful on a relative term, right? He can say that relatively. Jesus can say it absolutely. He can say it 100%. He just wasn't faithful to the covenant. Jesus fulfilled that covenant. Every last word, thought, and deed, Jesus completed it perfectly. 
the only truly humble man, such that Philippians 2.8, we read being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, right, as he has been humbled, God has what? Keep these words of 2 Samuel in mind. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. You see, Jesus lived as Adam, as Israel, as David, as you and me, as we all fail to live. He lived the life that you and I were meant to live. And then on the cross, Jesus died the death that you and I were meant to die. We were meant to die that death so that by faith in this spotless one, this righteous one, right, we can be forgiven. We can be reconciled and restored. Oh, friends, if you are in any way new to Christianity or if you are new to what Christians refer to as the gospel, the glory of the gospel is not do some good things, cross your fingers, and hope it's enough. That's not the glory of the gospel. The glory of the gospel is that this Christ has done every good thing and in him, he's perfectly enough. We can have everything in him. Our hope as Christians is not finally, right, in what we have done and what he's done. It's not our life, it's Christ's life. It's not our righteousness finally, it's his righteousness. It's not our humility, it's Christ's humility. It's not our love, but Christ's love. To trust in what we can do for ourselves, given all that God has done for us in Christ. That is the epitome of pride. It is to be haughty. And the Lord brings such people low. The wonderful news of the gospel is that today you can own what you did not ever earn. That's the beauty of the gospel. Today you can own what you did not ever earn. Not by believing in yourself, not by looking to yourself, but by looking to Christ and believing in him and in Christ alone and all of his righteousness by which God delights in you and accepts you can be yours. You didn't earn it, you don't deserve it, but he gives it graciously. It's the kind of savior he is. Now to the Christian, God is finally pleased as well with you, isn't he? Because you now are in Christ by faith. So on your worst day, what do you do? You plead Christ. And on your best day, what do you do? You praise Christ. And because of our union with Christ, every blessing of his becomes ours. Sins forgiven, fellowship restored, resurrection promised, joy everlasting. And because Christ has secured our own righteousness, therefore we are now freed to live righteously, not proudly, but humbly, graciously, thankfully, joyfully. We live now different as those who have received and been blessed and have had accounted Christ's righteousness to them. So they live out their righteousness, not to earn, but to express how God has loved them and how they love him in return. Him in return. Well, how does David do all of this? He does it, fourthly, notice, by proclaiming God triumphantly. Brings us to our fourth point. Proclaim 
God triumphantly, which really covers verses 31 all the way to 51. And again, just notice, don't take my word for it, notice what David does. This God, David says, his way is perfect. So here are all the ways he proclaims God triumphantly. Verse 31, this God, his way is perfect. Verse 32, and who is a rock except our God? Verse 33, this God is my strong refuge, and he has made my way blameless. Just notice there, David's boast is not in what he's done. David's boast right there is not in his own accomplishments. It's in what? In what God has done through him. That's what his boast is in. He made my feet like a deer, verse 34. He trained my hands for war, verse 35. You, O God, gave me the shield of your salvation, verse 36. You equipped me with strength, verse 40. You made my enemies turn their backs, verse 41. You delivered me and kept me as head of the nations, verse 44. You who brought me out of my enemies, verse 49. You exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from men of violence, And for all this, David says, verse 50, I will what? Praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing praises to your name. Verse 51, for great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and to his offspring forever. David's boasting in God here. You can even say he's bragging about God. He is triumphantly proclaiming all that this God has done for him. And there's no doubt that God dealt wonderfully and powerfully with David. And friend, you just have to ask yourself, has he not dealt so wonderfully and powerfully with you? In Christ has God not made our footing sure and firm like the deer? In Christ has God not defeated our own enemies. The the greatest enemy being sin and death itself. Like Colossians 2.15, Christ, we read, disarmed the powers and authorities. So with David's enemies, they just went running. Christ disarms them. He makes a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And in Christ, God has equipped us for spiritual war. He has clothed us, Ephesians 5, with the belt of truth, with the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit. Yes, this song is first about David, verse 51. Absolutely. Even more, it's about his offspring, Jesus Christ. But for those united to Christ by faith, it too can be about us. So I ask you, my Christian friend, just member of UBC, I ask you, in what or whom do your lips typically praise Do they praise God? Do they praise what he has done? Or is your mouth more prone to to turn sort of back to me? It's kind of like a boomerang. You send it out, but you know, one way or another, it's going to find its way right back here. Think about the last week or the last month. Do you secretly or maybe, maybe subtly try to draw attention to your own successes? Or do you openly and joyfully proclaim Christ's successes? Do you like to draw the spotlight, right, ever so gently, slowly upon you? That doesn't have to be an obnoxious way. Some people obnoxiously put the spotlight upon themselves. Recognize you can also do it in a very self-deprecating way. Either way, you put the spotlight right back here. You turn it upon yourself. Do you do that or do you direct 
that spotlight upon Christ. Who's the hero of your life? Is it you? Is it a spouse or a boyfriend or girlfriend or maybe some politician? Or is the hero of your life clearly Christ? Recognize that is, friends, that's why we gather. We gather to triumphantly sing of Christ, to praise him, to preach of him. At the close of his life, notice David was a worshiper. He was a worshiper. Are you a worshiper like this? A worshiper of Christ. Because recognize you can show up Sunday after Sunday and you can gather with us here and you can never truly worship. That's sadly very possible. Do you actually open your mouth to sing? Because you know the words are true and they're your only hope? Or do you just watch others sing as if these words are true maybe for them but not for me? Do you pray and do you give praise to God as we gather? Or do you find that your mind incessantly wanders? It, it plans your week, it plans your activities, or maybe your mind is thinking about the selection committee's college football playoff impossible choices right this afternoon. Our minds can go any number of places, can't they? You know, when you leave here, do you give testimonies of God's grace? Do you share about his faithfulness even in the midst of great hardship? Or do you find you're much more prone to mumble, to groan, to complain about how hard life is or what a raw deal you've been dealt, how nothing in your life seems fair? Is that the refrain that comes from your lips? If you want a good exercise over lunch, proclaim one way God has been especially gracious to you. One way he has shown himself faithful to you, and not just generally, not just like, yeah, Jesus, right? That, that is true. It's not what I mean. Get specific, like David does here. He gets very specific. I assure you, God has dealt with you similarly if you'll have eyes to see. That's your lips. What about your life? What does your own life say? Notice what happened as a consequence of David's life. End of verse 44. He was what? The head of the nations. People I had not known served me. Foreigners came cringing to me. Verse 46, they came trembling out of their fortresses. Such that verse 50, what? The Lord is praised where? Among the nations. Paul actually quotes verse 50 in Romans 15. Because going all the way back to Abraham, even as Nick reminded us earlier this morning, God's purposes have always been global. They've never just been about one ethnic people, but they've been about the nations. Such that the spread of God's praise among all peoples becomes the praise of Christ and the spread of the gospel to all peoples. And friends, recognize that's happening all over the world. It's been happening today, right? Not just here, from coastal Australia to inland China. From Israel's kibbutzes to Gaza's camps, from African village to European cities, God is even today, while we were resting and sleeping, he is being praised among the nations. And by our own lips and lives, we get to add our voice to the chorus of that praise. We get to join in that song. Friends, 2 Samuel 22 is an invitation to rest your feet upon God our rock. 
to feel the firm ground of Christ underneath you and to rest on him by faith. Do you? You know, I ask again, if someone were to write a song about you, about your life, about your legacy, what would it say? You know, in the words of Elton John's song about Princess Di, would it celebrate you as the rose? You as the grace of the nation? You as the one whose name the stars spell in the heavens? Notice David extols not his greatness, but the Lord's. Not his achievements, but the Lord's. Not his power, but the Lord's. Not his praise, but the Lord's. Friend, what about you? What will be the refrain of your own life? How will that chorus sing? Let's pray.